For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Our Father, we thank you for your amazing grace that we've been singing, that it appeared bringing salvation to all men, but it only instructs us who believe through a second birth. Thank you for opening up our dead hearts, our blind eyes, our stopped ears to the truth of the gospel. We bow in your presence, acknowledging the great privilege to live holy and righteously and to be zealous for good deeds. We dedicate our missions conference to you because we know unless you are in it that all of the plans, all of the activities, all of the meetings mean very little. We pray especially for these missionaries that are coming from many countries of the world, some here from the United States, some from foreign countries. You know each one. We know some are coming tired and exhausted and even a little burned out and apprehensive. We pray that this week might be a time of great refreshment for them, for the speakers, for everyone that's involved. We pray for the meetings and the adult Bible fellowships and homes here in the auditorium and the different venues that you have given us that we might be encouraged by each other's faith. And now we pause in your presence this morning as we open your word. Like little children, we are totally dependent on you. We pray for the Spirit of God to open up blind eyes, and for those that have met you, that he might illumine the truth that is here, that indeed that the grace that we will study might motivate us and encourage us to do what we just read, to be zealous for your will and your plans. Help me, fill me, use me again tonight, bring people I pray to meet the pastor who need a church home, some who need salvation. May your hand be over the meeting. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 13. If you're new to the Bible, it's easy to find. It's the very last book of the Bible. And if you're with us for the first time, typically we take a book of the Bible and we go through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so we're between books and I'm doing a series that I've entitled God's Prophetic Schedule. And right now we are focusing on the tribulation period as Jesus unfolds it and the Olivet Discourse. He begins with events after the church is raptured all the way until his second coming to the earth. And we studied Matthew 24, 1 through 14 in great depth, and we saw that what Jesus describes as the birth pangs, that they perfectly parallel Revelation 6 and the judgments that will come during the time of the Great Tribulation. So we're not really in the birth pangs now. What Jesus describes in 4 through 14 of that chapter are but the beginning of the birth pangs. And then there is an event Jesus taught right in the middle of that seven-year period, and the time clock begins with the signing of a peace treaty by the Antichrist with Israel. Daniel affirms it, and Jesus describes it as does the Apostle Paul and John here in the Revelation. It's seven years long. But there's this event right in the middle that is a game changer. You say, well, are the things that we're seeing today indicative of this coming period? Certainly, because to have birth pangs, you have to have a pregnancy. 
I think what we are witnessing today are the Braxton Hicks contractions, if I might use that term. But once the water breaks, once the tribulation period starts, like a woman labor, the birth pangs will increase in frequency and in time. And once this mid-event takes place called the abomination of desolation, it will go from tribulation to great tribulation. Now remember, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. Four of his apostles are with him, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And they are asking him about the temple, when it's going to go down, when it's going to be destroyed, and his coming. And of course, uh, we have studied the first 14 verses in great detail, so I'll not belabor it, but I want to pick up in verse 15. Now, remember, the answer he gives is the longest single answer that Jesus gives to any question ever asked. This is really the longest discourse that he gives right here. And of course, it's on Tuesday before Friday when he's crucified. Let's pick it up in verse 15. These men knew something about the abomination of desolation. They studied Daniel. So Jesus runs off that assumption. Verse 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's dead center, right in the middle of the seven years, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. So knowing that many in our day don't know what the abomination of desolation is, we've spoken over the last three Sundays of what encompasses that particular event and some of the circumstances surrounding it. We studied first the time frame when this man of sin, the Antichrist, one of 30 titles that are given to him in Holy Scripture, what will be the time frame of his coming, what will be the specifics of how he will desecrate the temple, and then we focused on his religious uh, passions, which really become, among other things, the glue to pull the world together. The Bible teaches what people often call today a great reset. And it comes according to the revelation on three levels. It comes governmentally, it comes religiously, and it comes economically. Uh, maybe you've heard that term before. It used to be called the New World Order, but Klaus Schwab, the founder of the World Economic Forum, wrote a book by that title, and it's kind of caught. And so most of the world speak now of the Great Reset. And of course, uh, the first reset that scripture describes is really not what took place in Noah's day. Some would say, well, that's the great reset, the initial one. Now, that was from heaven when God flooded the world and then Noah went into a brand new world, as it were. And it's a picture of what will happen when Jesus comes back and during his kingdom will go into even a regenerated earth. But from man's side, the first great reset that was attempted took place as we studied last week or two weeks ago with Nimrod there at the Tower of Babel. So it's really not anything new. It's something that's very old. And of course, the World Economic Forum meets every year, every year since 1971. It's been in existence for over 50 years. Klaus Schwab is the founder and president of it. The head of the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, is there every year. The head of the World Bank is there. 
World leaders from over 100 nations gathered last May again, presidents, prime ministers, kings. It's global in nature. In fact, globalism is a big part of what they are committed to. They believe that all the problems we see in the world today are related to tribes and countries and nations, and that if somehow you could erase the borders and we could create a global unity, then the problems would go away. And of course, that is in rebellion to what God himself instituted in the Torah and what is reaffirmed in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Acts 17 that God has made from one man, referring to Adam, from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. So this whole idea of creating justice for all by erasing the borders is really an anti-God move, and it's not really birthed in Klaus Schwab's heart, but it's in the heart of the devil himself. And so their uh, modus operandi, as it were, is to eliminate borders and to use crises to try to accelerate that. I don't think it's by accident that our president seems to ignore everyone's admonition that people are coming over the border. Now they say over 4 million since he's been the president. Look, if you do not have borders, you do not have a nation. God is not against bringing people into a nation. He gave instructions to Israel that they should because they too were once aliens in a foreign land. And he gave them instructions about showing compassion, but he also gave specific guidelines as to how these people were to be received and how they were to act. And that's critically important. In addition, the WEF wants to eliminate the capitalistic economy and to create a socialistic economy. Many young Americans, 51% of millennials are in favor now of socialism. Socialism is an anti-God principle. It defies what scripture says about owning personal property. And so God says you shall not steal. He said you shall not covet. That's impossible unless you own that property or someone else does. But if you eliminate that, then you again, you are creating an atmosphere for globalism. And so during the pandemic, Schwab wrote, quote, the pandemic represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world. He didn't see the pandemic as a catastrophe. He saw it as an opportunity. And so again, their, their, their goal is global government. And of course, with the pandemic waning at the last meeting that they just had a few months ago, their focus was on climate change because they see that again as an opportunity to bring the nations of the world together. What has happened during COVID is something that has really not happened since the Tower of Babel. It's the first time it's happened since the languages were confused where the nations of the world came together. And it's really just a preset for the coming reset that the Antichrist will bring. And what he plans to do, again, comes in the same three levels that these world leaders are trying to pull off. Now, with that said, I want to focus this morning beginning in verse 11, but we're going to start reading in verse 1. We've done a careful exegesis of the first 10 verses, so you can go back and listen if that would be helpful to you. But for the flow of thought and context, let's begin reading in verse 1. 
we're told, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words of blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name in his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and faith of the saints. Now breaking new ground, verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. There's a note-taking outline there in your bulletin. If you want to jot down some thoughts for further reflection and study, you can print it out online. There are three truths that I want us to grasp that Satan is going to use to bring about this coming great economic reset. The first truth concerns the man leading the coming global economic reset. That's where I want us to begin. We want to think about this man who will lead the coming global economic reset. Verse 11 introduces us to this new vision that John has. Notice, then I saw another verse coming up out of the earth. Now, read this chapter carefully. There are two beasts. Most often, the beast that you read about is the beast of all beasts, the Antichrist himself. But when you come to verse 11, there is a second beast who, unlike the Antichrist who comes up out of the sea, this second beast comes up out of the earth. And he is described as another beast. We studied earlier that there are two words for another in Greek another of a different kind, heteros, and another of the exact same kind, alos. In other words, this is another of the same kind. This is not some animal. 
This is another literal human. Now, there are some people today, they teach replacement theology. They're amillennialists. They are wrong. They thought that because God had done nothing with Israel for nearly two millennia, that God wasn't going to do anything with Israel, that the church has replaced Israel. That's bad theology. I don't know how else to say it. I don't want to be ugly, but it's bad theology. And it has put the body of Christ at large asleep because they are in failure to see what God is doing in the world today. It is not by accident that God said at the end of time, he would gather the Jews from the four corners of the world and bring them back into the land. He waited 1,900 years to do it, but he has done it. And he continues to bring the Jews there. And so very often when people look at Revelation and they believe in supersession, um, replacement theology, um, tongue-tied today, uh, uh, when they teach replacement theology, they spiritualize the book of Revelation. And so John Piper or Vadi Bauckham, they say, well, the book of Revelation is history with the exception of the second coming. Now, those are good men. I love them. But they're wrong. This is not history. You have to spiritualize the text. And so John Calvin could not write a commentary on Revelation, though he wrote a, a book on a commentary in every book of the Bible. I have his full set because he didn't know what to do with it. He applied a different principle of interpreting the scriptures, what we call hermeneutics, when it came to prophecy than he did to the rest of the Bible. And unless the, uh, there's something in the text that tells you, well, this is metaphorical and it's not to be taken literally, on well, the plain sense, makes good sense, don't seek any other sense or you'll come up with sheer nonsense. And that's why there are so many interpretations by amillennialists as they approach the book of Revelation. So they say, well, the beast is some kind of governmental system. No, it's a person. You say, how can you be so dogmatic? Because of what John will write in Revelation 19 and verse 20. This is at the second coming, which they don't deny. And it says, and the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. They're both, as all lost men will someday meet, the lake of fire. That's where they are thrown. You don't throw an institution into the lake of fire. People will be in the lake of fire. And by the way, uh, Revelation 19.20, he is given a different title. You will notice he's called the false prophet. So the second beast is also called the false prophet. And there's clearly a difference between the two. Look again at verse 11. I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns. The first beast comes up out of the sea. And when you read first century Greek literature, it's plain that the beasts in the animal realm that people feared the most were those not on the land, but those who were in the sea. Well, this beast, this first beast, is most to be feared. He's represented, as we saw in Revelation 13 and verse 1, as having 10 horns. And this beast who comes out of the earth he has just two horns. And so the first beast is, in one sense, the leader of the two, as is unfolded here in the Revelation. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. Now remember, he is called the false prophet. It's articular. Not just a false prophet, but the false prophet. 
He is the false prophet of all false prophets. He'll have many compatriots during the time of the tribulation, as Jesus spoke in, in, in Matthew chapter 24. But this man is the leader of them all. And like most false prophets, they come with deception. He comes with the imagery of a lamb. He's gentle. He's harmless, it seems. He's innocent because he's a counterfeit of the true Lamb of God in his message. Nonetheless, he is a beast. He is in a lamb's disguise, using that as camouflage, and he is bringing a false message. I saw another beast coming up out of the sea, I mean, out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. So he is a great imitator, and again, unlike the Antichrist, who has 10 diadem, 10 crowns, because his focus first and primarily is that of political and governmental, this man who works alongside of the Antichrist, knowing the power of religion to glue people together, his focus is that of religion. Jesus said, beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So this lamb has the voice of, a, of the dragon. Now, who is the dragon in the Revelation? Well, he's already spelled it out in chapter 12. He said, the dragon of old, who is the devil? That is Satan of old. And so lambs don't scare people. They come gently, seemingly harmlessly, innocently, much like many of the tele-evangelists that you will see on TV. They seem like super nice guys, but when you pull back the veneer, you discover that their theology is heretical. But most today have zero discernment because they don't know any of the Bible. Jesus warned in Matthew 24, 11, many false prophets will arise and mislead many. But this man, because of the articular use of the false prophet, as we just read in Revelation 19, 20, he is the epitome of all false prophets. He had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. And so this pro false prophet, by his language, is linked to the devil himself, who's the dragon. You say, well, what does the dragon speak like? We don't have to wonder. Jesus said in John 8, he said that Satan does, quote, does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Sounds like a lot of our politicians. We have people who are children of God, or Jesus will say in this same chapter, you are of your father, the devil. Once you've passed that point of accountability... You're not considered a child of God, for as many as received him, to them he gave the right, the authority, the exousia, to be called deemed children of God. No, you're either in the kingdom of light or in the kingdom of darkness. So we have a politician who speaks, and all he's doing is lying to us. Why? Because he's of his father, the devil. And Jesus will go on to say the devil's a murderer. And so our own president this week, bragging on Twitter how he's going to protect the right of women to abort their little babies in the womb. Why does he think that way? Because he's of his father, the devil, and the devil is a murderer. Now, we should pray for our president. God could save him like he saved Manasseh or like he saved Nebuchadnezzar, but he's lost. And just like our vice president and our speaker of the house, they are propagating wicked doctrines 
upon the American public. And so this false prophet is in league and partnered with the evil one, just like the Antichrist is. And so when you hear these men speak, this is the voice of hell itself. And this man especially is the minister of propaganda to try to point people to follow after the Antichrist. And as you study the revelation, you discover that what we find in Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet is an unholy trinity. Satan is described in this chapter as achieving a goal that he always wanted. When all the way back in eternity past, he wanted the heavens, the angelic host to worship him. I will be like the most high. It will become realized during this time frame. Evil beyond evil. Men will worship the devil. We'll see that in a moment. Men will worship the devil through the Antichrist. Just like we go to the Father through the Son. So the Antichrist takes the place of God the Son while the devil takes the place of God the Father. And the false prophet, he takes the place of the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? He points men to Christ. He doesn't call attention to himself. He lifts up Christ. He wants men to love and to worship Jesus. Here's a chart that might help you that I put together some years ago to distinguish between the Holy Spirit and his role and that of this false prophet. The Holy Spirit exalts Christ where the Antichrist exalts Antichrist, or the false prophet exalts Antichrist. The Holy Spirit gives divine revelation, whereas the false prophet gives satanic revelation. The Holy Spirit enlightens us with truth. Where the false prophet, well, he deceives with error. The Holy Spirit is building the body of Christ. This false prophet is building the body of the Antichrist. The Holy Spirit, well, he marks us. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. Even so, the false prophet will point men to receive the mark of the Antichrist himself. The Spirit of God secures us for heaven. The role of the false prophet is to secure people for hell. Now remember, Paul said this to the Corinthian church. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. He's the master imitator. And if he is the master imitator, then you can expect his servants. And these two men, this demonic duo of sorts, will imitate the devil's character. He exercises, notice, verse 12, he exercises all the authority of the beast in his presence. Now, if you look back at the end of verse 2 here in chapter 13, we're told in the dragon, that's Satan, gave him, contextually the Antichrist, the first beast, his power and his throne and great authority. And we exegeted that in great detail some weeks back. So we're told that the Antichrist rules the world, not by his own power, but with the dragon's power. He's Satan's Superman, as it were. The most powerful fallen angel in all the universe will lead and inhabit this individual, beast number one. Even so, it will be true, not just of beast number one, but beast number two. All the authority of the first beast the second beast will have in his presence. So his authority, his power, his exousia comes from Satan himself. Now, let's see how broad his power is here in verse 12. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth, circle those two words, he makes the earth, 
not the physical planet, but the people of the earth, and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. So the Bible is very clear that this second beast, who is a false prophet, is so compelling that he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. In other words, he's going to facilitate a worldwide worship of sorts. He'll be able to unite all the religions under one banner, and we studied that last time. Initially, the Antichrist in religious Babylon will bring all the religions of the world together. And we've seen this through the World Council of Churches and the Protestant side, and we are seeing it like never before under the leadership of the Roman Catholic Pope and the two that preceded him. We are seeing a form of leadership to bring the world religions together under one roof. It's evil, just evil. The Pope came out in favor of civil marriages, saying that homosexual people need to be treated like families. He just hired a person as, as director of communications there in Rome who pastored a gay church, who in June said we should celebrate his Catholic Church's gay month because we need to affirm the children of God who are in this evil. And the Pope appointed him. And of course, at this most recent conference, just two weeks ago, he again denied that Jesus is the only way to God. And all these religions are coming together. Well, there's going to be a change, as we're going to see, and that it starts that way, but there's going to be an exclusivity of worship during this seven-year period. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, notice whose fatal wound was healed. We've seen that already. The Bible is very clear that this second beast, this false prophet, makes the earth and all who dwell in it to worship him, and the impetus behind it is this fatal wound that is healed. So we saw that during this seven-year period, in the first half, there's an assassination attempt, and it's successful on the Antichrist. He is murdered, and the world will be watching, and three and a half days later, he will literally come to life. And people will say, who is like the beast? Now, this will be Satan's counterfeit miracle. It will be real. He will be dead. Some people say, well, he didn't really die. He was just, you know, hurt or appeared to die. No, the same kind of Greek grammatical structure is used of the lamb as if he was slain. Was Jesus literally slain? Yes. It's actually a way to teach the opposite, to emphasize the truth that this man was literally dead. And so he gets those who dwell on the earth to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Now, we studied, if you look back at verses 3 and 4 of this chapter, that he had this fatal wound. He was dead, but he comes back to life. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. Clearly, these two are linked together. They're a duo. They're working together in one another's presence. They fit hand in glove. This is the man who is coming who is going to lead this great coming reset in the economic realm. That's the first thing I want you to see. Secondly, I want us to consider the miracles that will precede, the miracles preceding the coming global economic reset. The miracles that will precede the coming global economic reset. And so the role of the false prophet will be to make false religion appealing and captivating and palatable. And one of the tools that he will use will be false religion and a false, propagated and boosted up by false miracles. Look, if you will, now at verse 13. 
he performs great signs so that he makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. Now, please understand this word sign, I think most of you know, is the word samion. It's one of the words in the Bible for a miracle. It's one of John's favorite words. John in his gospel records seven miracles prior to the resurrection, five that are unique to his gospel. And it's the word that you would typically use when you had a miracle with a message. And so there's a message behind all of this. Remember, these miracles are going to get people to look at the Antichrist. Paul told us when we study the abomination of desolation in 2 Thessalonians 2 that the Antichrist coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. And one of the false wonders will be fire coming down out of heaven. Now, this is not some sleight of hand, hocus pocus kind of act. These are real miracles performed under the devil's power. And again, they will be part of the judgment upon those who heard the gospel prior to the rapture. I know I hear sometimes speakers give people almost a false hope and they'll say, well, you can become a Christian after the rapture. It would just be very difficult. That's not true. Second Thessalonians is explicitly clear that those who heard the gospel, at least in power and in clarity, God will send upon them a deluding influence that they might believe what is false. Why? Because they didn't embrace the truth so as to be saved. And so just like the two witnesses who will do miracles, and the two witnesses that are described in Revelation 11, they seem to mimic the ministries of Moses and Elijah, and so if I were to bet who they might be, I would choose those two, especially in the fact that Jesus discusses the coming kingdom with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, but they do the same kind of miracles, and add to that, we're told that Elijah is going to come back before the second coming of Christ. The Revelation teaches that, Malachi teaches it, the Gospels affirm it. And so here are these two witnesses who've brought fire down from heaven. So here comes this beast number two, and he brings fire down from heaven, and no doubt will quote scripture with it to try to give credence to who he is. Verse 14, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which was given him to perform and the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. Here's the third time this miraculous supernatural healing of the Antichrist is underscored. Now, he's not resurrected. He's raised to life like other people are in Scripture. Jesus uniquely is resurrected. But nonetheless, he was dead and his fatal wound was healed. He's brought back to life. Remember what Jesus said during this time frame in Matthew 24, 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, and grammatically meaning it's not possible, but if possible, even the elect, to mislead even the elect. In other words, it will not be possible but this will be about as close as you can get if it were possible. Powerful, powerful, deluding miracles that the world will embrace and believe. And so we've already studied back here in verse 4 of this chapter. They worship the dragon, that is the devil, because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? 
So it's the miracle of the Antichrist coming back to life that makes the beast popular. And they recognize that he received his power from Satan. You say people will worship Satan. That's what the text says. But Satan, no doubt, will present himself again as a glorious, magnificent angel of the universe. And people will embrace him because of this counterfeit miracle. The wound that he had by the sword. Look at verse 14 again. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come back to life. Here for a third time, underscoring this supernatural miracle that really shakes the foundations of Christianity because he's basically saying Jesus is no greater than the Antichrist. Verse 15, and it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now, the rest of the Bible tells us that this specific event will take place in a rebuilt temple. And of course, the Orthodox people are deeply committed, many of them, to the rebuilding of the temple. When we were there on May the 14th, 2018, for the 70th anniversary, crowds of cheering Orthodox Jews were going through the streets saying, we want to rebuild the temple. We want to rebuild the temple. As I noted a few weeks ago, all of the clothing for the Kohan, the priests, have been made. All of the temple furniture has been reproduced. In fact, they have architectural plans that you can see that we looked at there in the Temple Institute. And they even are training Levite priests. They have over 500 DNA-certified Levites that they are training in this sacrificial system. Now, I mention this because what the prophet Daniel calls the abomination of desolation that we just read when we began in Matthew 24, 15, takes place in a rebuilt temple. And that's what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2, that the Antichrist is the one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And then here in verse 15 of our text, it describes how the Antichrist will do this. And it says, and it was given to him to give breath to the image. So this second beast, the false prophet, will give breath to this image. There's going to be some kind of a statue there in the temple. And it's going to come alive. So that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So in the city of Jerusalem, the Antichrist and his false prophet will march into a rebuilt temple and they will commit the abomination of desolation. And the abomination of desolation takes place on two levels. One is we just read from 2 Thessalonians 2, he claims to be God Almighty. You say, what's so evil about that? Jesus did it. It's evil for this man because it wasn't true. I mean, Jesus went in the temple and he said, this is my father's house. He made himself equal to the father. And so his just claiming that he is God in and of itself would not necessarily be a defilement except with that which accompanies this act. There's an image, and this is in violation of the Decalogue. Moses wrote in the Ten Commandments, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath 
or in the water under the earth. And so those Jews who had not at this point had their eyes open through the 144,000 missionaries and evangelists, through the two witnesses on the Temple Mount, and through even an angel who will preach the gospel during this time frame, those who had not yet believed in Jesus, this will seal the deal. They will recognize that this one they thought was the Messiah could not possibly be the Messiah because God would not violate his own Ten Commandments. And so he'll desecrate the holy place by committing the abomination of desolation. And I suspect they'll probably do it in the Holy of Holies. And we're going to learn next time from the Olivet Discourse that this will be the time when many of the Jews will flee for protection. You say, you think people will really respond to some image coming alive? Are you kidding me? Do you remember what happened in Florida about a decade ago? There on a bank window a stain formed after a rain and it looked like an image of the Virgin Mary. And literally thousands of people showed up and made shrines there. And finally the bank had to remove the window and put a new glass in. And then some guy, he toasted his toast in a toaster and he came out with an image of the Virgin Mary. I think he sold it for 20K if I remember. People, especially deceived people, those who have rejected the truth will believe all kinds of lies. And so the world is being set, preset for this coming deception. So let's go to Roman numeral three there on your outline, which brings us to the method behind the coming global economic reset. Beyond the man, beyond the miracles, let's think for just a moment about the method behind the coming global economic reset. We pick it up here in verse 16. And he causes all, you should circle that word all. Some of you don't bring a Bible because you don't have one. Come tonight, 5.30, meet the pastor, you'll get a beautiful Bible. And he causes all, meaning all types, all classes of people here in the context. He causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on, his right, on their right hand or on their forehead. This will be the crowning spiritual decision for many people Unless some think that this is some forced thing or they're tricked into it, it won't be some trick. I had a couple of Marines come in during COVID when they were being required to get the plug. It really wasn't a vaccine, was it? Because it didn't protect you from anything. Even the president who'd been jabbed, I don't know how many times got it. That was poetic justice. Hmm. Well, one Marine wanted to know, could this be the mark of the beast? No, not at all. Remember, the Antichrist won't be revealed until the Great Tribulation. We're not in the Great Tribulation. And this is not like, oh, I was tricked into it. Ah, I got the mark of the beast. It's too late. No, when it says he causes all, it's critical that you take this in the context. It sounds like he's got a gun to their head and he causes you to take the mark. No, the cause contextually is in the sense that if you want to be able to buy or sell anything... You must take the mark. Not to mention many are going to be enamored with the Antichrist. They've already stated the crowds, the multitude. Who is like the beast? This is an exciting day for the people. They'll line up to get the mark, to take uh, his name, as it were, upon their skin, either on their right hand or on their forehead. Now, with that said, I want us to think for just a moment why some people will take it. And let me suggest at least three reasons. Number one, some will take it because they're absolutely convinced. Some will take his mark because they are convinced that this man is who he claimed to be. And so, look, when people reject the truth long enough, 
they will believe a lie. In fact, Paul uses, as I noted when we studied 2 Thessalonians 2, he says they will believe the lie. They are going to believe the lie that the Antichrist is who he claimed to be. And of course, Jesus taught this principle. When you are given truth, and some of you are listening to me, and you've never been regenerated by the Spirit of God, the direction of your life has not changed because you've not been born again. You're just in the same old wicked ways. And you've tuned into this broadcast for whatever reason. You're playing with fire by doing nothing with the truth. Listen to what Jesus said, because this is applicable not just for this future time frame, as Paul said, but for today. John 12, 35, Jesus said, while you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and he departed and hid himself from them. But though he had performed many signs, or again, it's the word for miracles, miracles with a message, though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. And then John quotes the prophet Isaiah For this cause, they could not believe. In other words, because they were not believing, the King James says, because they would not believe, they came to a place where they could not believe. Look, you don't draw yourself into the kingdom of God. You're dead in your trespasses and sin. By nature, there is no one who seeks God. And if your experience at four or five is you had a heart for the things of God, that was only because God initiated with you, probably in response to the prayers of your people, uh, your grandparents, your friends, your neighbors, your, your loved ones, your parents. But God initiates. Jesus said, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. So you don't draw yourself to God. God works in your heart. And while God is long-suffering, you keep saying, no, 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 not today. Eventually, God will give you your wish. Listen to how Jesus said it in the parable of the sower in Luke 8 and verse 12. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. So when a heart is habitually unresponsive, that person can reach a point where they will not believe and be saved. So some will take this mark because they are convinced, and Paul makes it clear, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence that they might believe literally the lie. But there's a second reason. Some will take this mark because they are convinced, but some will take this mark, no doubt, because they are cowardly. They don't want to deal with opposition. Listen to what Jesus said in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. There was a book, by the way, that came out years ago on evangelical presses. It sold like hotcakes, and it described the various first three soils. The first one is an unbeliever. The next two is carnal Christians, and the third one, and the fourth one is a Uh, as a spirit-filled Christian. That is just so far from the truth. And I sat next to that man because we were both uh, directors of uh, ministries of different cities with executive ministries in in New York City. And I sat and I said, man, you, you missed it. The first three soils are unbelievers. The one whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. 
You meet people like that, right? They come to a church like this. They get excited. They get emotional. They receive it with joy. Yet, has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. It's interesting how Jesus said it in the parallel passage in Luke 8, no doubt on another occasion, but Luke words it like this, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root, but Luke adds, they believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. So they receive the word, they get excited, but their belief is only intellectual. They get emotional, but it never touches the will. Look, every time you see the word believe, it's not always in reference to saving faith. Simon in Acts 8 believed, but Peter said, you're still in the bondage of iniquity. John 8, Jesus speaks of those who believed. They were giving intellectual assent to what he said, but he goes on to say, you're of your father, the devil. So there's a lot of people who have a false salvation. It's intellectual only. They have a reformation. They clean up their act momentarily, but they're not regenerated. They have light, but they don't have life. There's not genuine conversion. With the heart, man believes unto righteousness. Not so on this particular soil. And so they make some outward confession, but it doesn't represent an inward reality. And so when someone is like this and they begin to meet persecution or affliction or opposition, they typically crumble. And that will be especially true during this time, because if you don't take the mark of the beast, which becomes a requirement halfway through, you'll be killed. You'll be executed. Not to mention you won't be able to buy or sell anything. So another reason, a third reason some I think will take the mark is because they're consumed. They're consumed with a multiplicity of various sins. We read in Luke 8 and verse 14, the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. Now, we're going to learn in just a moment, again, you won't be able to buy or sell anything unless you take the mark. Uh, we have already studied from Revelation chapter 6 that there will be such hyperinflation during this time, a man will work hard all day and barely be able to feed his family. It will be a horrible time on the earth. And so some people will be more in love with their stomach. Paul says of unbelievers, their God is their stomach. Some people live for food. That's their God. And that will certainly be true of some. Some live for pleasure. Many people in this nation, the only thing they're interested in is their next sex partner. It's just wicked. It is wicked what is happening today. And during this coming time, there will be some who will be more in love with this life, and they will be consumed. They will be cowardly. They will not respond you say, well, this is just ignorant and uneducated people. Oh, no, 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 no. Look at verse 16. And he causes all, all kinds of people, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves. Notice the global sweep. First, the small and the great, meaning the antichrist fallen will touch every social category, the untouchables in India all the way to the royal family in England. The poor person to the millionaire. The antichrist doesn't care 
whether you're well-bred or whether you're disowned, whether you're slave or free. You say, slavery? That doesn't exist anymore. Oh, yes, it does. It's still across the planet. The United Nations estimates five years ago, they said 21 million. Now they say 48 million. And of course, one of the principal ways that slavery is expressed is in human sex trafficking. And I see these little girls that some of our border agents have rescued, 10, 11, and 12 years old, and you would think our president cared enough about them to shut the borders, but he's opening the borders and they're being raped and abused by men. They're slaves of men. And of course, in many nations of the world, there's what we call collateral debt bondage, where if you go into debt and you can't pay your debt, then you will serve that person. And if it's not paid off before you die, then your kin will serve that person. And God, knowing the future, writes even during this time of the free and the slaves. So what I want you to see in these three couplets and these three expressions is that it represents every cultural category upon the earth. Now let's read all of verse 16. And he causes all the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. Now the Greek word for mark is the Greek word uh, karagma. And it is used of uh, an etching, a brand, uh, outside of scripture, it's used only in two other places. If a body wasn't branded, today the common expression would be a tattoo, but if the body wasn't branded, then it could be used of a snake bite. It was used for that, where the teeth marks have created a mark. Or it can be used of a man who marked his camel as ownership of his own property. Now, I've noticed since... I've been alive that tattoos have become very, very commonplace. And I go to some other countries, and what I see in America seems mild compared to what I'm seeing in other nations of the world. Now, I'm not here to rag on anyone who has a tattoo. I baptize people nearly every week up there in either one or both services, and there's ink all over folks. Now, you ask me, would I suggest someone to get a tattoo? Would I discourage someone from getting a tattoo? Absolutely. And I'm not here to preach on that, but I, I've got a sermon on that if you're interested. People call often on the Bible line. You say, what if I have a tattoo? Well, you know, what can you do? I mean, and I'm not saying that everyone who has a tattoo, please understand, don't write me and email me, please. I'm not saying that they have been involved in some kind of sensuality or immorality. But many times that's the case. Many times. That's the launch pad. They're immoral for the first time, and the next thing you know, they got a tattoo. And if you got a tattoo for whatever reason, just let it be a reminder, a mark. I look at my left arm and I can't straighten it, but God used that to bring me into the kingdom, and it hurts almost every day. But I'm not my own. It's a reminder of God's goodness, of God's grace. And he causes all the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark. I think what we see happening today is it's getting people used to receiving a mark on their right hand or on their head. Now, there's been a lot of creative speculation, as I would call it, as to why the right hand or on their forehead. 
without over-spiritualizing the text, I think he says right-handed because it's only a minority of people who have been blessed to be left-handed. Um, with that said, <laughs> yes, I'm left-handed, sorry. Uh, <laughs> with that said, if you're missing your right arm, if you're alive, you've got a forehead, right? So you have a place on your body to be able to receive this mark. And we're given the purpose in verse 17, and he provides that no one, no one, be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. So the stage in many ways is being set by organizations like the World Economic Forum, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, to bring about total economic control. When they just met in Davos, Switzerland, again, over 100 world leaders along with these major organizations, apart from climate issues, the number one topic that they discussed, it encompassed one-third of all the seminars, was the central bank digital currency issue. What is central bank digital currencies? If that's new to you, let me just briefly explain it. We have in America a central bank. Our central bank, of course, is the Federal Reserve. And so the plan is to take uh, fiat currencies, for us it would be dollar bills, so to speak, legal notes and coinage, and to turn it all digital. In other words, there could come a time when they would say, hey, look, whatever dollars you have, you have so many months in which to turn them in, and we're going to make them digital dollars so that you will not be able to buy or sell anything except with digital money. I don't think it would happen overnight. I think it would be gradual, but I think it would unfold. And so your dollar number would then have a digital number. Now, I think for a number of reasons, our president, I think many of you have followed this in March, issued another executive order for our government to officially research this to see how plausible and the timing of possibly bringing this into the American culture. And some would say, well, there's a lot of advantages to it. It reduces all possibilities of counterfeiting and fraud, though it seems like the internet can habitually be hacked. But of course, if you couple this digital technology with a mark, it would be sealed tight. And of course, there are countries in the world where they're already doing it, Sweden, over half the population in Sweden, as pictured here, they have a digital chip. Here is an image. It's about the size of a grain of rice. It's put there typically between your thumb and your forefinger. And so in that country, when you go to buy something, you just scan your hand. And the money for that product is then exited digitally out of your bank account. I've been to China on a few occasions, but what's happening in China right now is very dramatic. If you go there right now, you will either purchase virtually everything through a prepaid card, through your phone, or through an eye scan. And they're boasting that they hope to be the first nation in the world to be totally digitized. And so America's federal bank, the Federal Reserve, stated earlier this year that a central bank with digital currency would be, quote, the safest digital asset available to the public with no associated credit or liquidity risk. Now, if our country implodes economically, it would also be an easy reset, where if you have $100,000, they say, well, now it's worth $50,000. 
but they can do it because it's a digital reset. But would also bring in tax revenue like we've never seen before. So you have a yard sale and you say, honey, let's have a yard sale. We could use a little extra money right now. So you have a yard sale. You can't take dollars from that guy who came into your yard. There's just a digital transfer. Every dollar that comes through your hands, so to speak, digitally, is now under government control. And more than 100 countries in Davos are investigating this, and 19 of the 20 G20 nations are planning to institute this. Central bank digital currencies. And again, I think it will be phased in over a period of time. And one of the things that would be a great impetus for the government to do this would be an economic implosion. Here's a debt chart, just to help us see it visually. Um, and you can see the line, it's almost flatlined until about 1940 when we begin to go in debt. And here on the far right on the scale, you can see since March of 2020, the U.S. government has added $7 trillion in debt. People say, what's the big deal? Well, the nonpartisan government accounting office has been saying for two decades it's a big deal. They have been warning our government that we are going to reach a point where it will be mathematically impossible for us to honor the money that we have borrowed. I don't know what that number is. We just crossed, by the way, $31 trillion two weeks ago. You say, well, look, if you have a credit card and you fill it up and the next credit card and the next credit card, and then you take some big back-breaking loan to consolidate all the cards, and you go, but you, there comes a point when you can't pay. And we have gotten away with a lot because we've had very, very low interest rates since the economic troubles that came in 2008. But now with rising inflation, that's going to change the amount of interest the government will pay. We won't see it immediately because a lot of these paper notes that the government has are three and five years out. But some of them come due next year. And there will come a point in, and if the U.S. government implodes, all the governments of the world will implode economically. And there will be a perfect scenario. Does the WEF want to see this? Of course they do. Here's what they tweeted from their website in their May 2022 meeting. They tweeted, welcome to 2030, I own nothing have no privacy, and life has never been better. That's their goal. And of course, China, they've added to their credit score system what's called the social credit score system, such that if you're not compliant with the government on A, B, C, and D, then that, that influences your score. Well, if the government controls your money digitally, what if you're not green enough? What if you decide you don't want to send your children to the government school system that is indoctrinating them with evil? And don't tell me it's not happening in Buford County, because I'm hearing about it in my office for people who come in for counseling. And I'm not ragging on our principals and associate principals and teachers who may be there. I'm not ragging on you. But you decide, I don't want to send my kid there. I want to send them to a Christian school or home educate them. Or I don't affirm transgenderism, and I don't want to use someone's preferred pronouns. Or I don't embrace homosexuality. And now what we're seeing happening is this is happening in families. 
where kids are coming out gay and transgender and this and that. And so what will happen? Well, your money may be under control. You say this is sensationalism. I don't think so. I'm not saying it's going to happen in my lifetime. It could happen immediately after the rapture, but you can see how it will happen. You can see how the preset is being made for this coming global reset. Here's right off of the WEF's website, and I quote, this is our vision. Remember, this is an organization where over 100 nations of the world, and you name this president, that prime minister, they're, they're all there. This is our vision of a true cashless society. There is an exchange of value in its entirety, just like cash. And it requires a national government rather than banks or the like to act as a payment provider. If everyone were connected to a cashless environment, there would be transparency in money flows, whether it's international aid or private investment. If everyone in the chain were connected digitally, you could see where the money went and how it was spent. Any sums appearing outside of that framework could immediately be flagged and investigated. They're not hiding these intentions. They used to meet since their founding in 1971, almost in a very stealthy kind of way, never advertised it. For the last three years, they've invited the media in and they're live streaming to the world. Why? Because they see people are open to this. When there's a crisis in the world, people are fearful. They want a sense of security. And they want a sense that everything will be fine. And think about if the rapture would take place. Let's just say of the 2.5 billion nominal Christians that 10% of them are born again. That would mean immediately there's 220 million workers who are gone, people who have mortgages. And I mean, this thing could spiral very, very fast. Verse 16, and he causes all, the second beast, the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. Now, we'll talk about the number of his name in just a moment, but what I want you to see is if you are not a part during this time of the Antichrist New World Order, then you will be on the outside. Imagine a young mother. She needs diapers. She needs formula. She needs an antibiotic for her baby, but she's unwilling to take the mark. No luck. A man stops for gas at a gas station, but he doesn't have the mark. Can't fill up your tank. The diabetic needs meds. No mark, no meds. A family is shivering in the cold and they need to buy electricity. No mark, no electricity. So this mark will divide the world into two camps. Those who wear the mark out of allegiance and worship of the Antichrist and those who do not. Now, certainly, a tattoo, if God had raptured the church in the fourth century, he could have used something like that. But when you see what is happening now that Israel's back in the land, now that we have the moral climate of Lot in, in Noah's day, now that we have the growing apostasy, now that we have world globalism, now that we have technology, you could see easily how technology and the mark or the image of the beast will easily be brought together. Verse 18 declares, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. People have often asked me, as I commented a few weeks back, do I think that the Antichrist is alive and that we can identify him? Clearly, you cannot identify him. 
And as I noted, most people think he's this popular person. Actually, he's the little horn. He's kind of an unknown. But he will quickly become known, much like President Zelensky. Unless you've been to the Ukraine many times, most of us probably didn't know who the president of the Ukraine was. Now he's a household word. That's how the Antichrist will come on the scene. Could he be alive? Of course. Some have tried to argue that Satan has had an Antichrist in the wing in every generation. I don't think so. Satan certainly is not omniscient, but he reads scripture. How do I know? He quotes it to Jesus. And one of the things he knows is that Israel has to be back in the land. That is essential. And so certainly God could have done that after the rapture. But the fact that he's done it in this time certainly would highlight in the evil one's mind that we are nearing that time frame that the Lord spoke of. Because God says he'll do that at the end of time before the second coming. So no doubt he has someone in the wing. Understand it's not some social security number. It's not some driver's license number or some national ID. It's a mark that represents the Antichrist. That's what the text says, the number of the beast, specifically, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Don't miss that. We're told two truths. First, something about the number of the beast, and then the number is that of a man. So let's think through that for just a moment. Linguists often refer to gematria, where you attribute a numeral, a number, to a letter in the alphabet. And a lot of languages have that. For instance, here's Hebrew. Um, so here's the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph is one. Bet is two. Gimel is three. Daleth is four, and so forth, all the way through. So you'll be able to take this man's name in whatever language we're not told the gematria is being used. Maybe it will be Greek since John is writing in Greek. And Greek has the same kind of format. And his name will add up to 666. Here's English gematria. We do it pretty simply in our alphabet. And by the way, if you're interested, my number is 220, Carl Joseph Brogies. All right, just, just want to make it clear, all right? Uh, but the number of this beast, the number of his name is 666. In addition, it's the number of a man. Remember, this is an unholy trinity. Satan duplicating the father, the antichrist duplicating the son, the false prophet duplicating the spirit. So certainly 666, the number of man is six in scripture, would be quite appropriate. But don't get lost in that because we're not going to be here for it. What I don't want you to miss is what he's saying here in verse 18. Here is wisdom. Now the church for 2,000 years have poured over the book of Revelation. God gave it to us, so most of it applies to the future because we can learn from it. Certainly chapters two and three are all about the church age, but the church is gone in chapter four and doesn't come back until chapter 19. But God gives it to us because he wants to make the church ready for the future. And he wants us to understand how things will unfold. But people who are alive during this time, they're gonna be pouring over this book. Here's wisdom. He's saying, if you really want wisdom, you will take what I'm saying very, very seriously. So think about this. He has already said in chapter 14, verses 9 and 10, let me read it to you. If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength. 
and the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. People during this time who refuse to take the mark of the beast, family members, friends, compatriots, they'll say, you're stupid, man, you can't eat. They're going to cut off your head. Actually, these are the wise people. Because those who take the mark, they meet God in his wrath. Listen to what he says in chapter 15 in verse 2 of those who don't take the mark. And these are martyred believers who are pleading in heaven. And he says in verse 2, and I saw something like a sea of glass with fire. If you remember from Revelation chapter 4, he's describing the throne room of God. These are people in heaven. He saw like a sea of glass mixed with fire and those who had been victorious over the beast in his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. Now, some may think they were stupid, but these were the brightest people of that day. How can we apply this? Let me suggest a couple of applications as we close. Number one, current presets should signal you that Satan's reset is approaching. We've spent four weeks studying the Great Reset. And unless you've just chosen to poke out your spiritual eyes so that you can't see, God is showing us what is being set up and what is unfolding and what is happening that is so unique in this time in human history are all of these events coming together at the same time. And so there's this growing spirit of a world government this is the spirit of Antichrist at work. There's this growing spirit of world religions equally embracing one another. And so the Pope denied that Jesus was the only way to God when he signed that document two weeks ago. There's a growing financial crisis in the world, and when it implodes, the world economies will have to come together. And so while we are not living in the tribulation, we are certainly living potentially on the precipice of that coming time. And for the Christian, this should not bring about anxiety. You know, our president's talking about Armageddon and possible nuclear war. By the way, the world will not be destroyed with nuclear war. That's not to say a lot of people couldn't go down or out through it. But it's not going to be destroyed. How I know it? Because I've read the whole book. But there's a lot of anxiety in the world. And God wrote the future for us so that we wouldn't be toppled by it, that we might live with a sense of confidence that Jesus is ruling and reigning. Secondly, wisdom would dictate that you choose the winning side. You need to choose the winning side. We read earlier from Revelation 19 and verse 20 something that is incredibly unique that's not revealed anywhere else in Scripture but in this verse. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. Look, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Now, by the way, this is exactly what Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. When Jesus comes, that lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Just the spoken word, Isaiah says, with the breath of his lips, he, the Lord, will slay the wicked. But what is revealed here that's revealed nowhere else in Scripture 
is that this will happen not at the end of the millennium when God gathers together out of Hades, which is a place of torment, but it's not the final resting place of the lost. When he gathers all the lost of all time, there at the great white throne judgment, that's when they will be thrown into the lake of fire. But because of the nature of evil that these two men commit, they are immediately, it's kind of a reverse rapture. Your body can't go to heaven in the one it's in today. But in the twinkling of an eye, this mortal will put on immortality. This perishable will put on the imperishable. They're thrown alive, reverse rapture, and their bodies are changed and suited for the lake of fire where it's never consumed. So you have to choose kingdoms. There's no neutrality. And if you're wise, you will choose the winning side. A census worker came to some lady's door and asked how many children in the house. She said, let's see, there's, okay, let me tell you how many children I have, Bobby and Susie and Billy. No, I don't need the names, lady. I just need the number. She said, my children are not numbers. They are names. To Satan, you are nothing but a number. To the Lord Jesus, as underscored in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you have a name that he will call you by. You take the Antichrist number because you miss the rapture, and you will be taking a mark that will seal your destiny. You won't be able to undo it. You won't be able to say, oh, let me get some surgery and get rid of the chip or get rid of the tattoo or whatever it is. You won't be able to do it. It's an irreversible decision. Just like when you're born again and you're sealed with the Spirit, you're sealed for the day of redemption. He will never leave you. You are eternally secure forever and ever and ever. So you can have a name or you can have a number. If you have a name, you have a place in heaven. If you have only a number, you have a reservation in hell. Today is the day of salvation. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity and privilege to read your word this morning as we see you setting the table for the return of your son. You did what you said you would do at the end of time. You've brought the Jews back into the land. You have them with a burning desire to rebuild the temple. We have the moral code of the days of Noah and the days of Lot. We have the globalistic culture all around us. We have growing apostasy where people are denying the plain and simple truth of Scripture. Help us to realize that an hour is coming when no man can work. We are celebrating our Father, as you know so well, this World Missions Conference. Yet we know it is utter hypocrisy to fund and pay someone with something we won't do ourselves. So help us to be faithful stewards of the gospel, to share with our loved ones, with our friends, with our neighbors, as you would give opportunity, how they can be forgiven and saved. And I pray you would help even someone listening to this message whenever they hear it, to call upon Jesus. Thank you that 777 is coming back and he's going to crush 666. And we rejoice that you recorded for us the end game. We offer you our praise and our gratitude in Jesus' holy name. Amen.